Thanks, Paul. Do, uh, do be turning back to uh, John 15, the end of John 15, beginning of 16. Uh, we live in a world that's worried about many things, climate change, coronavirus. I thought I might be on my own this morning. Um, are you asking yourself, is my cough dry? Anyone asking themselves that this morning? Um, uh, do turn to John 15, but what we're doing now is coming to the most important thing, uh, to the Bible, to God's Word, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is about Jesus. And we ask, therefore, as we come to these words, written in the power of your spirit by these men, so by the power of the same spirit, you'd speak into our hearts. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. With great power comes great responsibility. Do you know who said that? With great power comes great responsibility. Was it was Aristotle, Plato? Gandhi, Uncle Ben, someone shouted out Uncle Ben, thank you very much indeed. It is Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, said to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And in one way, that could be a phrase that sums up the first two verses of our Bible reading. It's the night before Jesus' death. He's briefing his first followers, the disciples, Uh, This is, if you like, the briefing for mission Christianity going to the world. This is the roadmap for what their life is going to be once he's gone. He's told them that life is going to be tough, far tougher than they realize. Uh, Last week, you were looking at John 15, verse 18, where Jesus warmly said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Following Jesus Christ isn't going to bring universal love and admiration. It's going to bring hatred from the world around us. The world, says Jesus, will reject his followers in the same way that it's rejected him. And in the face of that rejection, Jesus reassures them again they're not going to be on their own. That first verse from our Bible reading, verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. You see, here is the great power, the advocate, literally the one called alongside us called alongside by Jesus himself, who proceeds from God the Father in heaven, who brings the very knowledge of God's love into our hearts, who we saw in John 14, brings the assurance of the presence of Jesus with us day by day in every circumstance of life, never leaving us, never forsaking us. This one is promised. But but the Spirit actually isn't sent to give the apostles a warm glow, not even to give them a a sense of inner peace. Did you see at the end of verse 26? He will testify about me. The Spirit comes to tell the world about Jesus. And he's going to do that through these 11 men gathered in an upper room, afraid, fearful, confused, just about to reject Jesus, run away from him. The Spirit is going to do something in their lives. So, So Jesus says to them, verse 27, And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. With great power comes great responsibility. See, those who've met Jesus, who've seen him, who've listened to what he had to say, who've 
wondered at his marvelous teaching, examined his character, well, they are to testify about what they've seen. Now, clearly, first and foremost, this is to the apostles. Uh, we weren't with Jesus from the beginning. Uh, some of you might look slightly old this morning, but I can guess that none of you were hanging around in Galilee 2,000 years ago. This is to them. But, but this also comes through them to us. This is God's strategy for the world. The Spirit is on a mission with people who know Jesus. And the mission is, make him known. With great power comes great responsibility. And Jesus reminds them straight away again, it's not going to be easy. Did you see that in verse 1 of chapter 16? He warns them, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. He recognizes there's a real danger of his first apostles actually deserting him. Uh, the greatest danger is not that they'll be put to death for following him, not that they'll be hated by the world. No, the worst thing that could happen is that they fall away from him. And they might do that because of what will happen in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Now, this is an enormous fear for them. This isn't just like being thrown out of church. You think, well, I didn't really like... That church anyway, that change of name, never very keen on it. I'm going off to St. Swithin's and the Piddle down the road. This is not being thrown out of church. The synagogue was the gathering place. That's literally what it means, the gathering place of the whole Jewish community. And to be Jewish was who you were. It was your entire life. It was the people you worked with and the people you loved. This is more like emotionally you and I going home and discovering that our loved ones have changed all the locks and are refusing to let us in or ever speak to us again. That's the level of rejection. They'll put you out of the synagogue. More than that, the people doing it will be the, the religious leaders of the day, the Bible scholars, the, the people that the disciples have been brought up to look up to and to respect. And as they put them out of the synagogue, they'll be thinking, if I can kill them, that'll be a way of serving God. No wonder the fragile faith of these first followers is under threat. And so Jesus reassures them. Sadly, it's true of the, the whole history of the church. Very often the most bitter opposition to those who go out with the good news, the gospel, the message about Jesus, doesn't come from the world outside the church, it comes from within the church. In 1536, a man called William Tyndale was strangled in Vilvord in Belgium and then burnt at the stake. He was captured by English spies sent out by King Henry VIII who was convinced he was serving the church by stopping Tyndale doing the most evil of things, translating the Bible into English so you could have it in your hand today. And throughout church history, it has often been those in religious authority who thought that they're serving God by getting rid of people who want to make the good news of Jesus known. So with great power, you might say, comes great responsibility and great pain. And you can understand why, why these first disciples are filled with grief. That's what Jesus says in verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things to you. Actually, the apostle Peter has asked back in chapter 13 where Jesus is going. But, but his question comes more from a fear of losing Jesus. 
It's more like a, a young child might say to their mum when they're being left with a, a babysitter, oh, wh where are you going? They're not concerned that mum's going to have a good time when she's out. They're more worried about them being left on their own. And so these disciples, they don't want him to go. And you can understand why. Oh, oh says Jesus, don't worry, I'm going to send the Spirit. You've got to testify to the world. But when you do that, you're going to get chucked out of the heart of the community, rejected by your family, and, and it's going to be utterly terrifying. No wonder they're afraid. How on earth are they going to carry out that mission? to a world that rejects them without the one they're following at the moment, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus reassures them. And we're just going to see two things this morning about the way he reassures them. He reassures them that actually his going is going to be better for them because it will mean the Spirit coming. Do you see that in verse 7? But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. So here are the two reasons it's better that Jesus is not physically here this morning. That you got me, not Jesus. It's better, I promise you. Here are the two reasons it's better Jesus is not physically here this morning. Here's the first one. It's better Jesus isn't here because the Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit convicts the world. Look, look at verse 8 with me. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness, and judgment. See, it's one thing, isn't it, to know you've done something wrong. It's quite another thing to feel you've done something wrong, to wish you hadn't done it, to be convicted. That's what this word means, a sense of shame. And the Spirit, when he comes, is going to do all over the world what Jesus could only do in the particular area he lived. He's going to put his finger on people's hearts. He's going to actually bring to those people who aren't Christians a knowledge of what they are doing in relationship with God. He's going to do what you and I cannot do, work on the very consciences, the very hearts of people, and show them the truth about themselves. Jesus says in verse 9, about sin, because people do not believe in me. He's going to convince people that they have done the greatest thing, the greatest crime that any person could ever do, reject Jesus Christ. You see, that's got to be the starting point of coming to Jesus to see your, your need of him. No one's going to the doctor at the moment if they feel fully healthy, are they? But if they do have a bit of a dry cough and they feel they might have a bit of a temperature, 111 goes in the phone and three days later someone answers. You don't actually seek help unless you see you've got a problem. And so the Spirit is going to show people that rejecting Jesus is a very serious problem. It's throwing God's love back in his face. Jesus says, verse 10, about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. As Jesus lived his life, he showed fully and finally what it was to live in right relationship with God. He had a life so pure that it's described in John as light, no darkness in it at all. There wasn't a hint of hypocrisy in Jesus, not a hint of self-love. He was full of compassion and gentleness. And now the work of the Spirit will be to show people how far they fall short of those perfect standards of righteousness of God. 
You see, unless you're, you're convicted of what God's true standards are, what you do is you, you judge yourself by your own standards, don't you? <laughs> pretty much everyone, when we judge ourselves by our own standards, we're pretty sure we're nice people. So the Spirit will convict us of God's right standards. And then lastly, verse 11, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Uh, the prince or ruler of this world is a way of talking about the devil, the, the real personal spiritual opponent of God. And right from the start of his, the Bible, his mission has been to get people to do two things, to disobey God and to believe there are no consequences. That's what he does in Genesis chapter 3. Take the fruit and eat it, Eve. Surely you won't die. Really, there are no consequences. And that's what he's doing all over the world today. Live as you want, and don't worry, there's no God, and he ain't going to hold you to account for it. And so as Jesus goes to the cross, he defeats the devil. He takes that condemnation, that death we deserve from God upon himself. He restores our relationship with God. So we're now just waiting for the final day when the devil will be judged and evil will be rid from the world forever when the Lord Jesus returns. And the Spirit is the one who convicts people that day is coming. He convicts people that there is a God and he will hold them to account. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, that might be an experience you can remember. It's not necessarily you can remember a moment when the Spirit came and did that to you, but you can remember that before you were a Christian, this is certainly my experience, Jesus was at best an interesting irrelevance. And you thought yourself, you were, you were a pretty decent sort of person. You were relatively nice. And God, holding you to account, well, even if you believed it, you certainly didn't engage with that as an idea, the idea of a judgment. But then, as God worked in you, today, well, you believe in Jesus. And you can't think of anything worse than not having him. And you know that you fall way short of God's standards. The Spirit has written his righteousness on your heart. And you believe there's going to be a day of judgment when all evil will be rid from the world because the devil is a defeated enemy. That that is experiencing what Jesus promises here, that the Spirit will convict the world. And it's vital the Spirit convicts the world in, in all three ways. I had a, a friend who wasn't a Christian who was uh, pretty sure God was going to judge the world, but he thought he was generally a pretty decent sort of person. He wasn't convicted about righteousness, so why didn't he need Jesus? Uh, there are some people who think, well, yes, God's going to judge the world. I'm not righteous, but actually they think that their religious ritual will sort it out because they don't see how serious the sin of their lives is in, in needing Jesus. You see, everyone needs to be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. So they desperately see their need for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, this, this might distress you, but I am praying, people here will be praying, that you will see that you are as unpleasant as we are. That actually, we're not a bunch of good people who've gathered together to pat ourselves on the back that we're slightly better than the rest of society. But we're a bunch of people who believe that we've fallen so far short of God's standards that we desperately need the Son of God to die on a cross for us. And we're praying that you would actually see that you're far worse than you think you are. 
and therefore come to the beautiful, loving salvation that God offers in Christ. That's, of course, the world's biggest problem this morning. It really isn't coronavirus or climate change. The world's biggest problem is that it needs convicting of this disease that has already spread throughout the entirety of humanity, the disease of sin. And when the world's convicted of that, that they would come to Jesus. That's why that should be our greatest worry if we're Christians. Not, does my neighbor have coronavirus, which of course is a caring worry for them, not ourselves. Or, is it that my house is going to be flooded through climate change? Our greatest worry should be, has my friend been convicted that they need Jesus? Do they believe that they are sinners who fall short of God's righteousness and face his judgment? That, that should be our, our prayer for everyone who doesn't know Christ. Not health, wealth, and happiness, but actually unhappiness. That they're far less happy about themselves. And so they'll come to God's love in Christ. It's why we should be praying for the, the Spirit to be at work in our, the hearts of our children, our grandchildren. Convicting them. Not that they become good boys and good girls, but actually they see they're very bad little boys and little girls. That's what we need them to see, so that they come to Jesus. It's like a trip to the doctor. I mean, going to the doctor in general is not fun. The news we receive, in general, quite often, it's not good. But we need to get that diagnosis if we're going to get the right medicine. And, and this is wonderful news. Here's the wonderful news. The Spirit does the work of diagnosis in the hearts of people across the world. He's the one who shows them what they're like. He's the one who shows them the sin of rejecting Jesus, the perfect righteous standards of God, and the reality of judgment to come. And that's why we must pray for God to pour out His Spirit, pour out His Spirit upon our friends and our family, pour out His Spirit upon our neighbors and upon our streets, pour out His Spirit upon the people of our community, that they would see their need of Jesus. They'll see what they're like, and they'll see what Jesus is like. Because here's the second thing. It's great that Jesus isn't here this morning because the Spirit convicts the world. Here's the second reason. It's great that Jesus isn't here this morning because the Spirit completes the Word. Look at verse 12 with me. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. This sounds like something I might say to my wife, Boo, when I'm giving her advice. Jesus has, been, thank you. Jesus has been teaching his, his friends for, for quite a long time. You know what it's like when your brain aches, you can't take anything more in? That, that, there's an understanding that that might be the case. Remember also, they're, they're filled with grief. And, and you know that when you're grieving, you, you know that when you're sad, you, you can't really understand, you can't take in a lot of information. So, so Jesus promises them in verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus promises these first followers that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. They'll, he'll teach them everything they need to know about Jesus Christ. More than that, he'll teach them about stuff that hasn't even, even happened yet. Things they couldn't know on their own. The Spirit's going to guide them into all truth. That means that as the apostles came to, to write down the Scriptures, to write down the Word in our New Testament, 
They, they didn't leave anything out. It was all truth. As we come to the Bible, we see them speak of things they couldn't have known without God's Spirit working in them, teaching them the future. It's a bit like that first time maybe you, you cooked with your mum, if you ever cooked with your mum. It wasn't that, like she got out a recipe book or, or even from memory, because mums can do that, and read out all the ingredients. You know, one teaspoon of baking powder, four ounces of flour, two of butter, vanilla essence. Just read through them all and said, right, bake the cake, I'll be in the sitting room watching the telly. I mean, it'd be carnage, wouldn't it? And then she stayed with you and, and helped you and, and guided you through it. And so Jesus, he teaches his disciples, but then he promises, don't worry, the Spirit will come to you and he'll help you and he'll guide you through writing down all that I've said. And that's great news for us because it means when we, we come to Jesus' words in the Bible, that then, then we know they're true. And it's all truth. There's nothing that Jesus wants us to know that he, he hasn't caused these apostles to remember and, and to write for us. We, we can even read with confidence about the things they tell us that are to come in the future because they didn't make them up. The very Spirit of God told them what to write. And as he did that, do you see what his aim was in verse 14? He will glorify me, says Jesus, because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. That the aim of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus. A mark of a Spirit-filled person is not that they talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, not that they want to dwell on the Spirit. No, a mark of a person who's been filled with the Spirit is they talk about Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they focus on Jesus. Because the Spirit's aim as He comes into our lives is to glorify Jesus. And in doing that in verse 15, in an extraordinary way, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he'll make known to you. We experience, as we glorify and know Jesus better through the Spirit's work as, as we come to the Word, we experience the very heart of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We, we know the God who created the universe intimately. You see, the work of the Spirit is, is more like a floodlight than a laser display. You know, sometimes uh, at fireworks displays, they have those lasers that crisscross the sky. And what you're supposed to do is you look up the laser lights and you admire their beauty. But the role of a floodlight is not that you look at the floodlight. The floodlight illuminates something that's beautiful, a beautiful building, so that you gaze at the building and wonder at its beauty. So the Spirit's work is not that we look at Him, no, he wants us to look at Jesus and to wonder at we, the Father's love that we can know in the Son, to be amazed at the very heart and character of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there is nothing more profound, therefore, than doing something that you can do now, you can do any moment of any day. Picking up the book that the apostles wrote and reading the words of the Spirit about the Son the Son who loves you, to make you a child of a heavenly Father. It's the most profound thing that we can do. As Stephen Hawking, who's quite clever, I understand, wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. Don't worry, I haven't read it, but I do know the last two lines. And he ended the book by saying this. Scientists, if they could find a complete theory of why we and the universe exist, 
it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God. Well, here's the great news. You do not need a PhD in cosmology. You do not need to study astrophysics for the entirety of your life. You do not need an interplanetary-sized brain to know the mind of God. You simply need the book in your hand, the Bible, and the Spirit making known to you the truth that he has caused to be written in this book about Jesus. I mean, some people travel the world for profound experiences, don't they? They go to the top of mountains. They go on pilgrimage. They smoke strange substances, all to get some sort of wonderful, profound spiritual experience. Can I tell you, here's the way you could offer someone the most profound experience they could ever have in their life. It is probably the most loving and the most powerful thing you could do for any human being. Would you like to read an account of Jesus' life with me? <coughs> do you get that? Don't worry, it's not dry. I might get some water. <coughs> we, um, we have this uh, Word one-to-one -one book. It's, it's a, actually just the words of John's Gospel. And, and we simply say, why don't you say to your friend who isn't a Christian, will you give me half an hour, I'll buy you a coffee, beer, tea, hot chocolate, cocoa, whatever is their preferred beverage, half an hour to read 18 verses, 18 sentences from the beginning of this book that's uh, are out of the book that sold more copies than any book in human history. Will you give me half an hour and see how it goes? That is the most profound thing you can do for them. It's the most exciting, the most extraordinary thing you could do for them. It's a, it's a better experience than a track day at Silverstone. <coughs> it's all that they need. Because what you're doing is you're bringing your friend to the heart of the universe, to, to the place where the Spirit of God will make known the love of God through the Father and the Son about how they can be a child of God. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, the best thing you could do is, is say to your Christian friend, will you do that with me? Will you, will you read maybe a, a little bit of John's gospel with me? Or, or even take, we'll get them off the top of the shelves where you can't reach them. We'll put those gospels down, please, someone on the table, so that on the way out you could pick up one copy of John's gospel and read it for yourself. Because there you'll find the Spirit has given us the very Word of God. That's why we want people to come and help with our King's Club. If, if seven more people volunteer, that means 35 more kids can have the most profound experience in the universe. They can meet the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as His Word is opened up to them. It's why we do Easter experience. It's why we'd love some people for the Discovery Zone. Because if just two or three people volunteer, you can have that incredible privilege of opening up with a child who doesn't know Jesus, the Word of God, that they might be convicted of their need of Jesus and read the most profound truth in the universe. So, so how are these apostles? How are we going to possibly testify to a world that is going to reject and hate us for making Jesus known? Well, with great power comes great responsibility. We have the power of God's Spirit at work in us and through us to convict the world of their need of Jesus. 
And we have the responsibility because we have the Spirit-written Word in our hands, the one the Spirit caused the apostles to complete. And the world needs to know it. So let's go and do it. With great power comes great responsibility. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't leave us as orphans alone. He sent his Spirit, the Spirit that proceeds from you, into our hearts. Be always with us. We thank you that he has convicted us of our desperate need of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he has taken us to your word, your completed word, and shown us the most beautiful and profound truths, truths that come from the very core, the very center of the universe, from God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now please, our Father, give us confidence that as we testify, as we share this great news of Jesus, so your Spirit will do the work in people's hearts we cannot do, that he will both convince them of their need of Jesus and open their eyes to the beauty of our Savior. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen.